This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. And we're asking for your thoughts, your contributions relating to the biggest story of the morning, and that is the New Zealand terrorist attack that left at least 49 people dead. There are some very shocking aspects to this story. The sheer death toll is shocking in itself. The fact that it occurred in in mosques, in, in houses of worship, the fact that he wrote a manifesto, and the fact that the attacker posted his attack online in a live streamed video. The reaction from social media sites and from media sites, more traditional media sites around the world, has been to remove that video. So my question for you is this, are you relieved that media companies are refusing to broadcast images from that graphic video of the New Zealand terrorist attack? Or do you fall on the other side of the spectrum? Do you say, no, that's censorship. And even though it is graphic, it is horrendous. It's not something I want to see necessarily, but I do believe that it is censorship nonetheless. Is that your perspective? I'm not saying that's my perspective, but I'm asking if it is your perspective. And that's why we are giving you a couple options. You can say, yes, you're relieved that media companies are refusing to broadcast those images. Or perhaps you're saying, no. It should be made available for people to see if they want to see it so that people can make up their own minds about that content. I think we'll all agree when our minds are made up that it's it's horrendous, that it's horrible, horrible content, but should you have access to it nonetheless? So that's our hot question of the day. As you know, with Simi Sarah's hot questions, you can vote in various different ways. You can vote on Twitter at CKNW. You can also vote on my Twitter account, because I'm going to be posting this as well, at Nikki underscore Reitmeyer. That's N-I-K-I underscore R-E-I-T-M-A-Y-E-R. You can also call the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899, and leave your vote there. If you were listening about 10 minutes ago, you probably heard Gord McDonald and I getting into this because he says very adamantly that no, the video should not be posted on social media. It should not be posted or broadcasted by media sites. And I can tell you that that is the position that our parent company has taken, Chorus Entertainment. They have said that they will not be making this video public. Some people listening may say good. Others may say don't censor content, no matter how horrible it is. So let us know. 604-331-BUZZ-2899, our hot question of the day. Are you relieved that media companies are refusing to broadcast images from that graphic and horrible video of the New Zealand terror attack? New Zealand Prime Minister spoke Thursday following a mass shooting at a mosque in Christchurch that left at least 49 people dead, calling it one of the darkest days in New Zealand's history. This is one of New Zealand's darkest days. Clearly what has happened here is an extraordinary and unprecedented act of violence. Many of those who will have been directly affected by this shooting uh, may be migrants to New Zealand. They may even be refugees here. They have chosen to make New Zealand their home and it is their home. They are us. The person who has perpetuated this violence against us is not. They have no place in New Zealand. 
There is no place in New Zealand for such acts of extreme and unprecedented violence, which is, it is clear this act was. According to the New Zealand police, attacks took place at two different mosques on Friday, at which time Muslims gathered for weekly prayers. The attack was allegedly targeting migrant communities in Christchurch, New Zealand. Here at home, here in Vancouver, the Al Jamia Masjid Mosque, which is the oldest mosque in Vancouver, has announced that they will be holding a prayer vigil and memorial service to stand in solidarity with those in New Zealand. And joining me now on the line to discuss the plans for tonight's vigil is Haroon Khan, a trustee of the Al Jamia Masjid Mosque, again, the oldest mosque in Vancouver. Thanks for joining us, Haroon. Thank you for having me. Now, when you look at New Zealand on a map, it's half a world away. But I imagine for you, this attack must have felt so much closer to home. It, it certainly does. Um, it's just uh, terrifying and um, so so utterly horrifying that this could happen uh, in a place of worship. Uh, we experienced this with the Quebec shooting in Montreal, where six people passed and um, uh, by, by this uh, this one one shooter, this one there were four, three men and a woman who were involved, and uh, I've seen footage of it, and um, it's just a, such a, a callous and um, very very um, emotionless uh, way of this this party. You just walked in and just started shooting. It really looked like a first person shooter video game where the, the, the party was just uh, shooting people indiscriminately, going back and making sure they were dead uh, but by shooting them again. And um, it, it's, uh, it's just um, beyond the pale uh, that this happened, uh, but it did. And, and, and that in and of itself is um, it, it, this kind of cruelty uh, occurring in a place of worship, um, it, it's extremely painful. And, uh, and for us, um, a mosque, a place of worship, is a place of refuge. And uh, to not be safe in that place uh, is very difficult to bear. How did you feel when you first heard the news? I imagine you picked up your phone or you turned on the radio like, like so many of us do when you first heard of this story. Did it echo sentiments for you of the same way you felt when you heard about the Quebec mosque attack? Yes, very much. Yes, yes, yes. Um, absolutely. It definitely brought brought to mind uh, what happened in Quebec uh, very much. So many of those emotions came flooding back uh, from that uh, that horrible event. And um, and, you know, really, our, our hearts are with the people of New Zealand uh, and the people there. And, uh, you know, these migrants uh, and, and many of the local people that were there were just living their life. And uh, and being in a mosque is is your safe place. Um, and having said that, um, you know, for us, when we first heard the news, uh, and we, we did have outreach from um, fr- from uh, the RCMP, from the Vancouver Police Department, all three levels of government, uh, um, we certainly ha- had a lot of support. And for our mosque, our doors are always open, um, you know, and we will not allow 
uh, even such a heinous act like this, for, uh, we, we will not change that policy. Yes, and speaking of your doors always being open, you're opening yes. them for a vigil tonight. Please share with us the details. Absolutely. Well, we're having two events today. Uh, we have uh, so this event occurred in New Zealand. It was there Friday, so it was at, uh, so Friday uh, at, at the congregational prayer. So this this congregational prayer is called Juma, and it'll be held from one thirty to two fifteen today at the mosque. and um, And certainly, everyone is most welcome to join us there. This evening, we are holding a vigil uh, following our evening prayers around seven thirty this evening. Uh, the doors will be open, of course, and everyone is, is most welcome to attend and uh, show their solidarity and um, and to come into the mosque. And uh, we'd like to really put the message out to come pray with us um, and, and come pray with us to make the world a better place for us all and come pray with us wherever you are, whether you're in your church, you're in your synagogue, your temple, where, where have you. Pray, pray with us, pray for the people that have lost their lives and you know, pray for a better world that we can all live in together. I think that's that's really the, the message that we have to bring home. Haroon, thank you so much for chatting with us today, and thank you so much for for opening your doors tonight and organizing this vigil. It, it's uh, it's our honor and our duty. So thank you, thank you for bringing some light to the situation. Haroon Khan, a trustee at the Al Jamia Masjid Mosque, which is the oldest mosque in Vancouver, and it's located at 655 West 8th Avenue in Vancouver, if you would like to attend. Welcome back to the Simi Sarah Show. I'm Nikki Wrightmeyer, filling in for Simi Sarah, who was filling in for John McComb earlier this morning, both of them unfortunately a little bit under the weather. Our hot question of the day for you, are you relieved that many media companies are refusing to broadcast images from the graphic video of the New Zealand terror attack? That attack was live streamed. We're asking you this question on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. And we're asking you this question on Twitter as well, at CKNW. So far, 92% of respondents have said, yes, I am relieved that media organizations are refusing to broadcast images from that terror attack. Tell us your thoughts on Twitter or by calling the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. The expert we're going to speak with now, he said to me in this conversation that he doesn't necessarily think that censoring that video is the right thing to do. Why does he say that? Well, to find out, let's bring in Professor Max Abrams. He's a terrorism expert from Northeastern University in Boston, and he is the author of a new book called Rules for Rebels, The Science of Victory in Militant History. Professor Abrams, thank you so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. Now, there seems to be a few standout points in this attack. There seems to be so much that we have to unpack surrounding this attack. I mean, there was the sheer death toll is shocking. The fact that it occurred in a mosque, the fact that the killer live streamed a video of the attack, that he wrote a manifesto about it. There's a lot to unpack here, isn't there? Yeah, there's no question. Um, This is a very noteworthy attack in, in terms of the sheer scale of it. Um, I've seen reports that 49 people have been killed. That's 
up a lot of people, particularly for a lone wolf terrorist. A, a lone wolf is someone who's operating independently of an organization, who doesn't have any material or operational support. Um, so this is among the, the most lethal lone wolf attacks um, probably ever. I mean, I can think of some bigger ones. Um, for example, uh, Anders Breivik attack in Norway, uh, the Timothy McVeigh attack uh, in Oklahoma City. Um, but but this, this is a very large number uh, for a, a single assailant. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether, indeed, he operated uh, alone, for one. Um, it's also uh, interesting that he supposedly traveled from Australia to New Zealand. Why New Zealand of all places? Um, I've heard, based on his manifesto, that he wanted to show that even a place as remote as New Zealand um, is still uh, suffering, in his opinion, from a Muslim invasion in, in, in the crossfire from somebody like him. Um, but still, it seems rather odd to me that he would travel to New Zealand. Um, this is also a very public-faced assailant um, in two ways. First, he had a manifesto, uh, and most terrorists do not. And second, he live recorded the actual shooting. So this is someone who clearly wanted attention, attention both to his political preferences as well as the tactics that he would be using to achieve them. Um, so these are some of the aspects that stand out in this case. What you said there about the manifesto, it also strikes me as very unusual. So we don't often see in terrorist attacks a manifesto like this, do we? Right. It seems to me that the most analogous case is uh, Anders Brevik, uh, who committed... Uh, two attacks on the same day uh, in uh, Norway in 2011. Um, and this attacker also, um, you know, attacked two different venues um, in the same country. Uh, furthermore, this attacker in New Zealand uh, reportedly looked up to Anders Breivik. Um, Anders Breivik also had a very lengthy manifesto just like this attacker, and they seem to have shared a similar ideology, this fear of uh, a Muslim takeover of civilization. Uh, they're both uh, white supremacists. Uh, they are both uh, very into their own uh, physical fitness. Um, and so I, I, I see some similarities there. Um, but uh, yes, it, it, it's rather unusual to have a manifesto. I think that because of this manifesto, it was much easier for uh, the authorities in New Zealand to very rapidly identify what this attack was, uh, what this attack was all about. Um, oftentimes, we know that there was an attack against civilians by an individual, but we don't know what the motive is. We don't know if the motive was political. And so because of that missing component, um, there's often more reservation to label the incident as terrorism. But, in, but when you have a manifesto that's so overtly political, 
um, it's much easier to see what we're looking at. In that manifesto, he said that Trump is a renewed symbol of white identity. We know that his motives were based in white supremacy. Is it fair to say, looking at this attack and other recent attacks, that white supremacy is a rising global terrorist threat? I do think that it's fair to say that. Um, I think that when you look at um, what's going on politically throughout the world, there's a real zeitgeist, um, which isn't limited to Australia. It has also uh, infected uh, Europe, uh, the United States, and and many other countries, um, where uh, formerly fringe elements on the right um, seem to be getting more upset and and louder uh, and more violent. And unfortunately, uh, there's a cocktail of variables which are leading to increased right-wing extremist attacks. Um, there's, this, there's this political sentiment. Um, I think part of it is driven by mass migration um, in a sense among these people that their countries are changing demographically. Um, and also, of course, the internet is promoting uh, like-minded people to share similar ideologies and manifestos. And also, tactical information is now being shared much more readily um, in today's media, social media climate. And so for all of these reasons, I expect right-wing terrorism to continue to rise. Yeah, that idea of using social media to expand the reach of this ideology was was used very specifically in this case, because here we had a guy live streaming this horrendous attack on Facebook. Now, that video has now been taken down off of most off of most media organizations websites. However, it's very clear that he was using social media as a tool to expand the reach of his motive of his ideology. What role does social media play moving forward in these types of terrorist attacks? Sure. You know, usually what analysts will say is that it's very important for social media not to cover the violence, not to display, you know, the the actual attack. Um, However, the actual attack can be harmful for the perpetrator and his cause by exposing the evil behind it. Um, I, do, I am not worried so much about the actual attack being shared. I think, you know, in almost every single case, when people see the violence, particularly against civilians, it makes them even more opposed to the perpetrator and his cause. However, what does worry me is the manifesto, because the manifesto uh, expresses political views which, although reprehensible, have more support around the world 
than the violent act against civilians itself. And so my, I would urge the media not to disseminate the manifesto because it can turn the perpetrator into a type of political hero. Instead, if the focus is only on the violence, which has many fewer supporters around the world, it will better serve to isolate this individual and whatever political beliefs he may have. So it's actually the manifesto that worries me more than sharing images of the attack. Professor Abrams, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Nice chatting with you. I'm Nikki Wright-Meyer filling in for Simi Sarah. And before we get into our next topic, just want to remind you of our question of the day. And you can respond on Twitter at CKNW, or you can call the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899, asking you the question, are you relieved that many media companies are refusing to broadcast images from the graphic video of the New Zealand terror attack? And I can tell you the overwhelming response thus far has been Yes, I am relieved that many media companies are refusing to broadcast images. 91%. Online Jim wrote, when someone stages and films a murder because they have a sick need to force the rest of us to watch their crime, we need to deny them the publicity they crave. And he says, I don't need to see someone being shot to know how evil and horrible it is. This violence is out of control. But Laura says, the world needs to see this. We as a race, as a whole, as people with the capacity to sympathize and love, need to come together and open our eyes for too long. We have looked away. I have not seen the video myself. I do not want to see the video. I do not intend to look for this video online. With every fiber of my being, this type of evil disgusts me. I'm okay with this video being made inaccessible. However, I don't think that that should keep us from having an intelligent conversation surrounding whether or not you believe that you should be kept from viewing this content. I can tell you that our parent company has taken the stance that we will not be airing that video. We will not be publishing the manifesto and we will not be giving this terrorist the opportunity to spread his evil ideology. Interestingly enough, though, I just spoke to a terrorism expert. Perhaps you heard that interview about 10, 15 minutes ago. And he said that posting the video may actually work against this terrorist. Instead of helping his cause, people are going to be so disgusted by what they see that it will not help promote his ideology. Although, interestingly enough, that same expert said that we do need to be concerned about any republishing of that manifesto. So I ask you again, our hot question of the day, are you relieved that many media companies are refusing to broadcast images from the graphic video of the New Zealand terror attack? And I can tell you that so far, 91% of people we have polled have said yes. Okay, moving on. Let's bring in Richard Zussman now, Global News Online legislative reporter, to talk about inactive oil and gas wells in B.C., BC's Auditor General says there's almost 7,500 inactive oil and gas wells in the province that have not been properly decommissioned. Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you. My pleasure as always. I'm going to ask you very simply, first and foremost, 
what's a decommissioned or a well that's inactive, I should say? Is this a well that companies have, have drilled in and then found there's, there's nothing else there, there's no more resources left, so they abandon it? Yeah, exactly. And there's a process by which the companies are supposed to go through uh, to properly decommission that well and then uh, return the land back to being usable. And in these cases that the Auditor General found, uh, there are a lot of these, as you mentioned, a surprising, staggering number of these who have not been uh, decommissioned properly uh, that are still out there. And I think one of the big concerns the Auditor General raised is this could end up uh, leaving taxpayers on the hook for a bill. And we're talking about billions of dollars here, not just millions of dollars. We're talking about billions of dollars to clean up these wells. Yeah, Nikki, $3 billion is what we're talking about. And and the process is, uh, has steps to it, right? The the companies, the way that the system works in British Columbia is a polluter pay model. So if you uh, create the pollution, then you pay to clean it up. And there's an overseeing body uh, that oversees uh, the work being done, the BC Oil and Gas Commission. But then it's the legislation, the provincial government, that uh, ensures that the rules are being followed. And the Auditor General found that in many cases, the legislation was lacking in terms of the ability to recoup these costs associated with the cleanup. So that could potentially mean billions of dollars of provincial money having to go to cleaning up these decommissioned or orphaned wells. The legislation's improving. There's new rules in place. The NDP uh, have aggressively put in these new rules. Uh, but at the time when the report was done, the Auditor General looked into this. Those rules had not been finalized yet. Uh, the overseeing body, the uh, Oil and Gas Commission that I mentioned, is still working on uh, their own internal regulations. So, you know, taxpayers should be, uh, you know, conscious of this issue, that this could be something that comes back to bite the province and taxpayers in the butt. Okay, so anyone who just heard that $3 billion figure and gripped their steering wheel a little tighter or maybe (laughs) spit out their cup of coffee, now we don't have it confirmed yet that that's what the price tag is going to be, that taxpayers will have to pay. But it sounds very likely as though some of this is going to fall on taxpayers' shoulders. And Nikki, I think you got it exactly right. Like, I think there's the companies, there'll be more pressure applied to the companies to pick up the bill. In many cases, there could be these uh, wells sit empty, sit uh, orphaned uh, for a long, long time. And and the costs aren't recovered for a long, long time, which which is concerning as well to the environment. Uh, but I think part of this will be covered by the province. A large part of it will not be eventually. But I think the Auditor General wanted to flag this issue because it does have the potential uh, of high, high cost. So you're right. Don't grip your steering wheel too, too tight. <laughs> it's not gonna, the whole bill isn't going to come. But it is sort of this warning sign. And obviously the government's trying to address it with legislation, but it is a warning sign that this could be a problem down the road. So what about those who say, well, just leave the wells as they are, you know, forget about having to clean them up, just leave them as they are. We know that there's health risks associated with that. There's environmental risks as well. What exactly are those risks? Yeah, so I think, you know, anything to do with um, fossil fuels, non-renewables creates impacts around the carbon economy. Uh, And there's also, you know, impacts as well to the local environment. And so, 
you know, this is part, part of obviously a bigger, more complex issue around our discussions about how we use non-renewables. But I think that the model here is that the polluter pays and the companies are responsible for this. And there were some um, uh, uh, things raised, some examples raised in this report around companies that, you know, basically walked away from these big cleanup bills because they didn't have any money left. And uh, we need to find a way to make those com- hold those companies responsible for their actions because it's you know they played under a certain set of rules and now they're trying to change the rules now that they've walked away and I think part of this new legislation will provide the province with more ability to go after these companies which I think is ultimately what the public wants to see. Do we know at all how this is handled in other provinces? Uh, it's yes. I, I haven't looked. I know that Alberta has a pretty major issue about this as well, Nikki. And I don't know their legislation. I haven't looked into it, but I know that there are stories out there for people around um, how they do it. You know, they they have because there are a number of energy companies going bankrupt in Alberta. The Supreme Court uh, in the province actually ruled. Uh, sorry, the Supreme Court of Canada actually ruled that bankrupt Alberta energy companies can't walk away from their unprofitable wells. Oh, interesting. And so the province there also has power, but now that they have the highest court of the land on their side, uh, that provides additional enforcement to go after these companies who try to abandon the wells. Like, this is, you know, with this fight to, to, you know, get our oil and gas out of the ground and these oil companies exploring, you know, this Supreme Court of Canada ruling is obviously a very significant one uh, that could potentially apply here. But but this specific example applies to a decision that was made in Alberta uh, because it had become, not, not surprisingly, uh, an issue there as well. So that ruling came out in uh, the end of January of this year, so just a few months ago. Well, that's very interesting. I lived in Alberta for quite a few years, and I can tell you, you know, as you're driving down Highway 1 in the middle of the prairies yeah. there, you're more likely to see an oil jack or a natural gas stack than a tree. So God knows right. that this is an issue they're dealing with. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the, the economy there is, is based around this industry very heavily. And But I think what people forget is that British Columbia relies very heavily on the industry as well, right? In, in parts of the province, especially the Northeast, there's a huge reliance. And unlike Alberta, where, you know, you drive along Highway 1 through a very busy corridor and you it's part of the infrastructure that exists in that province, um, in BC, it's often forgotten, especially for people in Metro Vancouver. But it's obviously a pretty massive part of our economy, and, and this issue is one uh, that that matters to people, and, and you know that's why the Auditor General decided to take a look at it. Richard Zussman, proving once again what a fabulous and intelligent resource you are for Global <laughs> News, our Global News online legislative reporter. Richard, thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah, Nikki, my pleasure as always. Have a good show. It's the middle of March. God, this year flies by, hasn't it? It's the middle of March, but there have already been three gang murders in the city of Kamloops. What's going on? That is unprecedented. And if you think back to January 23rd, we brought you the news that two people were killed in separate incidents at motels and hotels in that city. Then on February 15th, a longtime criminal was shot to death inside of a townhouse complex. Now, the RCMP is telling the Vancouver Sun that Kamloops is taking its cue from drug and gang politics 
here in the Lower Mainland, and that big city crime is making its way to Kamloops. Joining us to talk more about this is Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bull. And Kim, I pick up my neighbor's newspaper every day for them since I'm one of the first people that leaves our apartment complex every morning. I picked up the paper to bring it upstairs to my neighbor, and lo and behold, there was your article right on the front page talking about this unprecedented level of crime, of murder, of gang murder in Kamloops. Well, yeah, I mean, it's very disturbing for local residents and for politicians and the police. Three murders, one of them was an uninvolved bystander. Uh, police believe that Rex Gill was killed in the second hotel shooting on January 23rd in a case of mistaken identity. So that makes it even that much more devastating for people in the community to think that someone completely uninvolved in the drug trade could end up lying dead in a parking lot. Well, and that truly is when it hits home, isn't it? When we start to hear about collateral damage or innocent people's lives being taken. And and it's no wonder that people in Kamloops should be very concerned about what is happening in their city, considering the trends that we've been seeing in the Lower Mainland. Well, that's true. And we know there are, there are big bucks to be made in the drug trade here in the province of British Columbia. And it's you know no surprise that Lower Mainland gangs uh, who control the drug trade, have moved into mid-sized cities around the province. We've seen similar things happening in Prince George over the last decade. Uh, obviously, Abbotsford was ground zero for this gang war for many years. And, you know, uh, Kelowna had its share of gang violence. So Kamloops is a city that's about 100,000 people right now. There's money to be made. And there's a mixture of sort of outsiders from some of these bigger gangs that we know down here on the Lower Mainland, the Red Scorpions, uh, Throttle Lockers is a puppet club of the Hells Angels, independent soldiers. But there's also a lot of local players who are sort of aligning themselves with these various groups and sometimes switching allegiances, which, of course, can result in deadly violence. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that more. I was curious, are these the same gangs that are operating here in the Lower Mainland, or are these new gangs that are appearing in Kamloops? You know, they're pretty much... Uh, sort of name brands from the Lower Mainland, if you will. Um, particularly right now, we see the Red Scorpions. There's been a group from Surrey called the Surrey Boys, uh, some members of which relocated up to the Kamloops area. Uh, they've had the independent soldiers there. So, it, you know, the, the names are familiar to those of us here in Metro Vancouver, uh, but some of the people involved are longtime Kamloops residents. Uh, who have been involved in the drug trade locally. They also have a number of people uh, that have been caught up in the violence at the lowest level of the drug trade, people that perhaps are addicted, who are uh, literally working at the street level in the drug trade. But because there's this proliferation of guns uh, in the province, even some of these lower uh, members of the drug trade have access to firearms, and therefore their disputes can end you know, with gunfire. What has some of the local reaction been from either citizens who are living in Kamloops or from politicians in Kamloops? Well, it's really a range. I think uh, some longtime residents of Kamloops will recall that 15 years ago or so they had the independent soldiers uh, there and there was some similar violence, maybe not to this degree or extent. And then, you know, there was some enforcement action. They kind of went away. So, you know, they've seen sort of the ebb and flow of this over the years. However, I think everyone's pretty concerned about the intensity of this violence in the first part of 2019. Uh, local police are doing investigations. There's already charges laid in one of the three murders. So that has provided some relief. Um, you know, however, they've called on the anti-gang agency, CFSEU, to come up with sort of reinforcements uh, to help get a handle on some of the 
uh, violence at the street level. Kim Boland, thank you once again for your fabulous reporting for the Vancouver Sun, as you always do. And for anyone who's interested in reading more of Kim's work, it's not hard to find. Look at the front cover of the Vancouver Sun today, and you'll see her story on rising gang violence in Kamloops. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, talking about unprecedented levels of gang violence in the Kamloops area. There have been three gang murders in that city, and here we are only in the middle of March. Well, in the merry month of May, now from me home, I started, left the girls and two were nearly broken hearted, saluted father dear, kissed me darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears to smother, enough to reap the corn and leaf, for I was born. Welcome back to the Sydney Sarah Show. Of course, if you hear that song, then you know that St. Patrick's Day is just around the corner. Yes, coming up on Sunday will be St. Patrick's Day, so prepare your Tylenol for Monday morning. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, filling in for Simi Sarah, and joining us in studio. Well, Alan Regan, producer of the Simi Sarah Show, first and foremost. And Alan, I brought you in here to be my mouth because I'm a vegetarian and we're about to do an Irish food tasting segment. Yeah, a very non-vegetarian segment, <laughs> admittedly. Um, Simi, of course, is not a vegetarian, so it was a little bit designed with Simi in mind, but I can be your mouth today. That's no problem. Joining us as well is William Donnellan, owner of Donnellan's Irish Chipper and Donnellan's Irish Pub in downtown Vancouver. Thanks for coming in today. You're very welcome, Nikki. Very nice to see you again. Nice to meet you, Alan. Good to be here. And you also, I think, first of all, let's start by talking about your other company, IRL, because that's really how the whole chipper and everything else got started. And I think what's cool about IRL, it's a local construction company. You employ lots of Irish people who have decided to spend some period of time here in Vancouver, whether it's permanent residency or whether they're just here on work visas. And you employ a lot of local people as well. So I think that's actually quite cool. Yes, that's correct. Uh, IRL was founded um, by myself and my wife in 2011. Um, we do have quite a few uh, Irish staff. Um, I won't. I won't name uh, or I won't uh, announce how many uh, or what the percentage is. But um, out of about uh, 60 workers we have currently, I'd say maybe half or more would be Irish. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and for bringing us some samples of food. I, uh, as we were saying earlier, I've been to Ireland a few times, and I know firsthand there's not a lot of vegetarian cuisine <laughs> in that country. Yeah. But what did you bring us today? Because there is one vegetarian item on the menu, I think. Yes, uh, we have curry chips there. Um, so, so what is the curry chips? So uh, it's basically fries uh, smothered with curry sauce. The curry sauce is... Uh, it's a special sauce. It's a real favourite of the Irish. Uh, it's called McDonald's curry, and we import it directly from Ireland by the pallet load. Now, forgive my ignorance here, but I don't normally associate Ireland and curry necessarily. I mean, there's another country that comes to mind, of course, a favourite in Indian cuisine. But but curry and Ireland and, and, and chips or fries, where does this all come together? Yeah, I know. Uh, and a lot of people say that to us. Um, but the curry sauce has been a favourite of the Irish for many, many years, as far back as I can remember. Um, we would get it in local fast food restaurants back in Ireland, such as Supermax. Um, and, you know, when when we went away from home and you, you really crave them things that you can't get, and uh, we just thought it, that it would be a good idea to look into importing this and having it on our menu. And uh, it's proven to be like uh, a true favourite, um, probably one of our best-selling dishes, actually. Now, what else do we have here? Because everything smells really good. 
We have uh, the Irish breakfast roll. So it's basically a breakfast in a baguette, um, like sausages, pudding. Uh, so that's a blood sausage, black and white pudding, uh, eggs, um, all in a French baguette. We also have a chicken fillet roll. So again, it's in a baguette. Uh, it's pieces of sli- sliced up chicken, breaded chicken, um, tomato, lettuce, mayonnaise. Uh, we also have a taco fries here. Taco fries are uh, they're another huge favorite of the Irish. Um, and are as, are, as are all of these dishes here, we have five dishes here. Um, the taco fries, I'm hearing a lot of very positive feedback about them recently. And the final one we have there is the spice box, uh, also known as the spice bag, although we serve it in a box. Uh, so so the, I, the container doesn't matter as much as the content? Not really. Okay. No, no. Uh, it's all about what's in there. And uh, once it tastes good, I think there's no complaints. Now, I'm really surprised because it sounds like uh, so much of what is enjoyed in Irish cuisine is influenced by other places around the world. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Taco fries, I guess they come from like, uh, we have a fast food restaurant chain in Ireland, um, Abracababra, and uh, that's where I've um, tasted taco fries in the past. And I think that's probably where it stemmed from. Um, So the spice bag is, is... Mostly popular, I think, in uh, Dublin, so on the East Coast. Um, I hadn't heard of it myself. I'm from Galway, so which which is on the West Coast. I haven't heard of it or hadn't heard of it uh, before I came to Canada. But um, a couple of places in Vancouver um, had added it to their menu. I think one maybe in particular, and um, it was it was a real favorite. So we decided uh, we would add it to our menu as well. And a lot of people come in for the spice box. Now, as said previously, we brought Alan, Simi mm. Sarah Show producer, into the studio to to be my mouth as a yes. vegetarian. I can't sample all of these items, and I think that we're probably torturing you by doing all this <laughs> chit chat. Well, you can smell like this delicious the food. food. Yeah. I was going to say, do you want to take a bite of the breakfast roll? Would that yeah. be your go-to out of all, all the items here? Which one would you choose? Ooh, you know, I think the go-tos for me would be the breakfast roll or the, the, the spice bag. And it's funny because I came to Vancouver in 2014 and uh, much like what you're saying, Willie, I hadn't heard of the spice bag when I'd left Ireland, but I went back about a year after I came to Vancouver for Christmas and it had just exploded in popularity. And there was, you know, these articles being written on BuzzFeed style websites talking about the explosion in popularity of it and how this was this this new, you know, culinary phenomenon in Ireland. And when I went back, I felt I have to try this out. And sure enough, I got hooked as soon as I went back and thought I have to see if there's a place in Vancouver that will do this. And there were lots of places that, you know, if you ordered a few different dishes, you could kind of combine them together. And but you'd end up spending a fortune on all this food right. that you don't really need just to try and make one spice bag. But it's great now that there's places that actually you can just buy it in one fell swoop. And it's sitting here in front of me. OK, just well, then without further ado, <laughs> stop wasting your breath on all these words and try some of this food and then and then give us your review. OK, sure. so joining us here in studio is William Donnellan, owner of Donnellan's Irish Chipper and Donnellan's Irish Pub, which you can find both of those on Granville Street in downtown Vancouver. Alan, tell us that you're chewing. Oh, it's good. It's good. Oh, OK, spicy, it's, um, as spicy. promised. It has like a bit of a kick, but, you know, it's nice that it has the kind of kick that Irish people can handle. <laughs> <laughs> Which admittedly isn't, you know, too hot. So if Simi so Sarah nice. was here, who loves spicy food, she would say, come on, this isn't spicy. Exactly, yeah. She'd be like, where's the spice in this? But I mean, for me as an Irish person, I can really feel the burn at the back of my throat right now. Okay, take a bite of that breakfast roll there. Mm-hmm. And while you do, I'm going to ask Willie. So it sounds to me as though Irish cuisine is something that is more of a modern creation. But what would be traditional 
Irish food. I mean, it sounds, of course, there's traditional Irish cuisine, but everything we're talking about here seems fairly modern. So what is the more traditional Irish food that people might want to try for St. Patrick's Day? Well, um, what did your mom feed you at home, I guess, is what I'm asking you. Yes, that's what I was just about to say. Um, <laughs> I was home recently uh, for a quick, a quick trip to Ireland. And um, when I arrived and walked in the back door, um, there was bacon and cabbage left on the table for me. So that's a real Irish favourite. And I think it's, uh, um, it's probably the most um, recognised or most traditional dish. Uh, so basically boiled bacon and cabbage uh, in a pot and uh, some potatoes. Um, then Irish stew would also be another one, like a beef stew, um, cottage pies. Uh, yeah, like brown soda bread is another one. Um, I probably should have brought a bit of that with me, but uh, I didn't think of it at the time. That's um, okay, Alan's going to be stuffed by the end of the second. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like the brown soda bread would go well with the stew. Um, so yeah, I'd say probably bacon and cabbage. Whenever I hear uh, bacon in the context of Irish food, it reminds me of this really cute story that I read once in a book that uh, was written by uh, an individual who was raised in the 1960s in County Limerick in a tiny little town called Eskeaton. And this individual had written a book of local tales and local stories that other people in the community had shared with him about what it was like to grow up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s in Ireland. And one of the stories goes like this. So, uh, true story. This little boy uh, and his mother are at home, and they've noticed that dad hasn't come home. Now, dad was supposed to go out and and buy some pork. He was supposed to go get uh, pig's head, I believe. So he had gone out hours ago, but he still wasn't home yet. So the mom says to the boy, she goes, go find your father. Go track down where he is. So the boy goes off, and he comes back, you know, 30 minutes later, and he has the pig's head, but there's no dad with him. And she goes, well, where's your father? And he goes, well, I found out, I found dad passed out drunk on the side of the road. So I took the pig's head because someone might steal that, but no one's going to steal dad. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was such a cute little story and uh, very delightful. And another aspect of Irish cuisine that I wasn't previously familiar with, pig's head. Yes, uh, and another one is what we call crew beans, which would be pig's feet. Um, they would be somewhat of a delicacy. Now, I my guess. family's German, so that one doesn't scare me too much, because I am familiar with the uh, the pig's hooves, the pig's feet being served in cuisine as well. Yeah, and sometimes coming with a bit of hair on there. Okay, that's, uh, un- <laughs> that's unfamiliar to me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Alan, you put a little bit of that breakfast roll in oh, your yeah. mouth. How was that? It was delicious. Uh, it's It's got, you know, as you were saying earlier, it's got the, the bacon, the egg, the sausage in it, the black and white uh, pudding, the blood sausage. And yeah, it's just, it, it does, it tastes like home. And this is, um, it, it, like I was reading a little bit earlier, it, it's it having it all in kind of a breakfast roll, like in, in a baguette is, is a more of a kind of a modern kind of take. And it's kind of a convenience food that kind of started about 20 years ago in particular as Ireland's economy kind of started, you know, uh, really, really uh, taking off and people just needed something that they could just grab on the fly and didn't have time to be sitting down and eating a full breakfast. So at least if you can sit there behind the wheel of, or, or in, you know, in, in the car and you can actually have kind of something just you know as a convenience food that's kind of where the the breakfast roll and the chicken fillet roll kind of originated from but certainly it is uh, a very convenient food and it's nice to be able to get the little taste from home well i'm sure many mouths are watering out there right now listening to the descriptions of the food that you guys have given I'm sure that many people are thinking, man, I would love to wash down some of that food with a pint on Sunday for St. Patrick's Day. But be honest with us, Willie, it's going to be crazy on Gravel Street for St. Patrick's Day, isn't it? What kind of lineups are you guys expecting? When should people be showing up to the pubs if they want to be going out on St. Patrick's Day? 
Well, yeah, it's going to be crazy. Um, starting tomorrow, we have the rugby, uh, Six Nations. So we got Ireland and Wales at 8am. Um, and I, I'm sure we're going to have a packed house for that. Um, for all the games uh, prior to this, um, it's been it's been really busy. Um, I think Sunday will be carnage, to put it mildly. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's as I said, it's our busiest weekend of the year. Um, there will people should expect uh, lineups, um, maybe a couple of hours. We try and get people wow, in a as, couple hours, yeah, in as quick as we can. You know, we don't want to have anybody standing outside in a lineup. I know what that feels like. I don't want to be uh, having people to wait out there. Um, but unfortunately, that's the way it is. We can only let in so many people at a time, um, and for safety reasons, we have to. Um, be very aware of of how many people are in there at all times, and to make sure that we don't go over capacity because um, it's like it, it's it's just uh, it's not safe. Number one and number two, it's breaking the law, and we cannot do that. Uh, so, I would say you want to be getting down there um, at about seven thirty, maybe S- seven a.m. Um, yes, seven thirty a.m. Yes, the game starts Ooh, at eight. Okay, so uh, yeah, that will be that's tomorrow. Um, and get down there good and early again on Sunday because um, it will be busy, no doubt about that. Jeez, oh jeez, okay. Well, I'm sure that food is going to be uh, flying off the kitchen shelves as of Saturday morning and Sunday as well. Willie, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us. Uh, William Donnellan, owner of Donnellan's Irish Chipper and Donnellan's Irish Pub, and as previously mentioned, IRL, a construction company, but you can find those two food locations on the Granville Strip right in downtown Vancouver. Thank you so much and happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you very much and many happy returns. When did you first hear the news of this latest horrific terrorist attack? Was it when you got into the car this morning and you turned your radio on? Do you wake up first thing and and look at social media on your phone, check the news feed? Is that when you first heard that 10 or so people had been killed in New Zealand while they were worshipping in mosques? An immigrant-hating white nationalist armed with at least two assault rifles and a shotgun is the suspect in the deaths of at least 49 worshippers attending Friday prayers at mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. From when you first heard that news, the death toll has changed. The number has continued to climb throughout the morning and now into the afternoon. 48 people have been injured. That terrorist wore a helmet camera, and he live-streamed the massacre on social media. He also posted a 74-page manifesto on social media, identifying himself as a 28-year-old Australian. I won't say what his name is, but a 28-year-old Australian who was out to avenge attacks in Europe perpetrated by Muslims. From what we know, the gunman acted alone and says he chose New Zealand to show that even the most remote parts of the world were not free of, quote, mass immigration. Joining us now on the phone is Elizabeth Brown. She is a reporter for Radio New Zealand. Elizabeth, when you hear that quote, someone saying that they specifically targeted your country because they wanted to show that somewhere even as peaceful and remote as New Zealand could be affected by their terrorism. How does that make you feel? Um, Well, New Zealanders are absolutely heartbroken waking up this morning to the kind of reality of what happened in Christchurch yesterday. And I think... 
I think the Prime Minister put it rightly yesterday when she said New Zealanders feel like this isn't us. We, um, we've never seen anything on this scale in New Zealand before. And she actually said, um, you know, we weren't a target because we're a safe house for fanaticism. We were chosen because we do represent diversity and kindness and compassion for those who need it. So New Zealanders this morning are waking up. Um, mosques are being flooded with flowers. Um, people are going to the hospital. Everyone is just wanting to come out and support the Muslim community. What kind of reactions so far have there been from politicians in both New Zealand as well as in Australia? Well, in New Zealand, um, the, obviously there's MPs from Christchurch who are on the ground um, helping support people. We've had a massive outpouring from overseas. We've had world leaders um, tweeting, sending messages to the government. We've um, had world leaders saying that they're flying their flags at half-mast around the world. The Eiffel Tower has taken its lights down, um, all to mark the victims of this terrible attack last yesterday. I imagine that yourself in your newsroom, you must still be trying to, to process what's what's happened, of course, so that you can report it as that's what your job is, but also on an emotional level. Yeah, well, I mean, yesterday when the news started coming out, it was, you know, there's a shooting in Christchurch and everyone thinks, oh, well, that's, that's unusual in New Zealand for a start, for there to be a shooting, because we do not have a gun culture in New Zealand, and we certainly don't have a gun culture um, with such um, powerful weapons. That has really shocked people, um, the weapons that were used in these attacks. But yeah, so people were like, oh, I wonder what's happening, and then it came out that it was a mosque, and we were sort of thinking, hmm, this sounds serious, and then the scale of the the tragedy just kept growing and growing and people were stopped on the streets looking at their phones, people were gathering together to talk about it. You know, New Zealand's quite a small place and degrees of separation are small. So um, the whole the whole country is feeling this immensely. Here we are on the other side of the world. We're located in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And even here the impact is being felt so strongly that in Vancouver's oldest mosque tonight, there will be a vigil held for the victims in New Zealand. You talked earlier about even in Paris, the lights have been dimmed on the Eiffel Tower. Are you continuing to hear more reaction from around the world of people who are touched and heartbroken by what occurred on your island? Yeah, I know that I've seen um, some things out of Britain where mosques, um, um, Muslims in Britain particularly, are gathering. Um, I think the Muslims in New Zealand are receiving a lot of support internationally. Um, they've been quite quiet at the moment. They said that they're going to make a statement later today. And also, um, just in terms of what's actually happening in Christchurch today, I think the Prime Minister is due to give a press conference in about 20 minutes' time, along with the Police Commissioner, Mike Bush, and a man um, who was arrested yesterday is going to be in court at uh, 9 a.m. New Zealand time, which is in about 20 minutes. A conversation that we're having with our listeners today surrounds the publication of the video that was filmed during this heinous attack. I can tell you that here in Canada, 
our company's stance has been that we're not going to publish that video. We're not going to we're not going to share it on social media. We're not going to share it in our newscasts, and we're not sharing that manifesto either. What has been the reaction from news organizations within New Zealand when it comes to sharing parts or not sharing parts of that video and manifesto? So Radio New Zealand's policy is not to share that video and not to share any of um, information about that manifesto. Um, That was quite a clear policy that um, the organisation made last night. And without surprise, of course, considering this, the sensitive subject matter of it. And I think that, you know, as far as our listenership has said, you know, they don't need to see that video to understand how heartbreaking and how heinous this attack truly has been. Elizabeth, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. I know that you're obviously a a busy woman as this story continues to unfold. Before we let you go, what is the latest news that you can tell us from ground zero on how things are unfolding in New Zealand? Um, Well, I guess ground zero in Christchurch at the moment, there are several crime scenes. So a lot of Christchurch is still sealed off today. Um, And also there's a lot of Um, interest in the people that were injured in this because there are 48 people still in hospital, critically injured. Um, Surgeons were operating through the night um, and I think there are some fears that the death toll could rise further. Elizabeth Brown, reporter for Radio New Zealand, thank you once again for taking out a moment of your now very busy day to chat with us here on CKNW in Vancouver. Thank you. That was Elizabeth Brown all the way from New Zealand talking about the heinous terrorist attack that has shocked and rattled her country. But my God, it's done the same to us here, hasn't it? Filling in for Simi Sarah, I'm Nikki Wright-Meyer. We're continuing to discuss the latest in the New Zealand mosque shooting, where 49 people have been left dead, 48 people remain in hospital. Just a moment ago, we spoke with Elizabeth Brown, who's a reporter for Radio New Zealand. We'll continue our coverage now by hearing from an Australian television anchor who is being praised for a powerful on-air reflection of the New Zealand mosque shootings and the politics of division and fear. Waleed Ali is one of the hosts of the Australian news and current affairs show called The Project on Channel 10. He himself is a Muslim, and he described to viewers that he was initially reluctant to weigh in on the attack that killed, as I said, 49 Muslims in two Christchurch mosques on Thursday night. Of all the things that I could say tonight that I'm gutted and I'm scared and I feel overcome with utter hopelessness. The most dishonest thing, the most dishonest thing would be to say that I'm shocked. I'm simply not. There's nothing about what happened in Christchurch today that shocks me. I wasn't shocked when six people were shot to death at a mosque in Quebec City two years ago. I wasn't shocked when a man drove a van into Finsbury Park Mosque in London about six months later. And I wasn't shocked when 11 Jews were shot dead in a Pittsburgh synagogue late last year or when nine Christians were killed at a church in Charleston. If we're honest, we'll know this has been coming. I went to the mosque today. I do that every Friday, just like the people in those mosques in Christchurch today. I know exactly what those moments before the shooting began would have been like. I know how quiet, how still 
how introspective those people would have been before they were suddenly gunned down. How separated from the world they were feeling until the world came in and tore their lives apart. And I know that the people who did this knew well enough how profoundly defenceless their victims were in that moment. This is a congregational prayer that happens every week like clockwork. This was slaughter by appointment. And it's scary because like millions of other Muslims, I'm going to keep attending those appointments. And it feels like fish in a barrel. But that isn't the scariest thing. The thing that scared me most was when I started reading the manifesto that one of the apparent perpetrators of this attack published. Not because it was deranged, but because it was so familiar. Let me share some quotes with you to show you what I mean. The truth is that Islam is not like any other faith. It is the religious equivalent of fascism. Or the real cause of bloodshed is the immigration program which allowed Muslim fanatics to migrate in the first place. Or as we read in Matthew 26:52, all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword and those who follow a violent religion that calls on them to murder us cannot be too surprised when someone takes them at their word and responds in kind. How do those words sound now? Now how do they sound when I tell you that they weren't part of the manifesto? They were actually published today, after this terrorist attack, on an Australian parliamentary letterhead. And I know they came from someone who I don't particularly want to name at the moment, who all parties have denounced. I also know that the leader of one of those parties that denounced him once described Islam as a disease Australia needs to vaccinate. And even that party is kind of on the fringes despite some valiant attempts by our media to change that. But I also know a senior figure in our government once suggested we made a mistake as a country by letting in Lebanese Muslims in the 70s. And I know there are media reports going back eight years of a shadow cabinet meeting in which another senior politician suggested his party should use community concerns about Muslims in Australia failing to integrate as a political strategy. That person's now the most senior politician we have. So while I appreciate the words our leaders have said today, and in particular Scott Morrison's comments and his preparedness to call this terrorism and the strength of his comments more generally, I have something to ask. Don't change your tune now because the terrorism seems to be coming from a white supremacist. If you've been talking about being tough on terrorism for years and the communities that allegedly support it, then show us how tough you are now. For mine, I'm going to say the same thing I said about four years ago after horrific Islamist attack. Now, now we come together. Now we understand this is not a game. Terrorism doesn't choose its victims selectively. That we are one community and that everything we say to try to tear people apart, demonize particular groups, set them against each other, that all has consequences, even if we're not the ones with our fingers on the trigger. Waleed Alad, a news and current affairs show host in Australia. About 10 minutes ago, we spoke to Elizabeth Brown, a reporter for Radio New Zealand, and I asked her what the reaction from politicians has been, both within New Zealand, but also within Australia. And I was wondering if she would mention that letter from an Australian senator, which she did not. But you just heard Waleed Alad mention it very specifically now. And can you believe that a senator in Australia said this? And I quote, 
I am utterly opposed to any form of violence within our community, and I totally condemn the actions of the gunman. However, and when you hear someone say, however, when you're talking about condemning terrorist acts, it must just make you shake your head immediately, because that's how I react. Okay, continuing. However, whilst this kind of violent vigilantism can never be justified, what is highlighted is the growing fear within our community, both in Australia and New Zealand, of the increasing Muslim presence. Really? That's the take? That's the takeaway from all of this for you, Senator in Queensland? That is your takeaway from what happened in New Zealand, a terrorist attack that left 49 people dead. Shocking, isn't it? And our breaking news comes from New Zealand. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has held a press conference in just the past few minutes. And it comes as we learn more details following that massacre in Christchurch that left 49 people dead. Ardern is pledging that laws in New Zealand will be updated because of this massacre. I can tell you one thing right now. Our gun laws will change. There have been attempts to change our laws in 2005, 2012, and after an inquiry in 2017. Now is the time for change. Well, there you have it. A politician reacting to a terrorist attack in their country by saying flat out, we will be changing gun laws in this country following that terror attacked. Now, she also confirmed that three people have been arrested over the Christchurch attack. One person has been released after it was established that they weren't involved. The individual charged with murder had not come to the attention of the intelligence community, nor the police for extremism. I have asked our agencies this morning to work swiftly on assessing whether there was any activity on social media or otherwise, that should have triggered a response. That work is already underway. Today, as the country grieves, we are seeking answers. Prime Minister Ardern has also said that officials are aware about the disturbing footage of the shooting that has been shared online. The police are aware of distressing material relating to this event being online and are reminding people it is an offence to distribute objectionable material. So there you have it. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaking about the terrorist attack that occurred in Christchurch on Friday and saying that gun laws in that country will change.